Hello, my name is David Oakes and welcome back to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think that our natural world is incredible. Whether enthused by rock stars or rock pippets, I get to talk with people who are dedicated to or inspired by the natural world. This week, I talk to a man with a hidden secret identity. By day, he is the Nature Reserve Manager at the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust's Clenethley Reserve. But by night, he is the lead singer and songwriter for the Glastonbury playing, later with Jules Holland appearing, silver record selling, rural existentialist Orna folk band, I wish I had coined that one, Stornaway. And back in March, on the brink of the band reforming after a 10-year hiatus, I got to speak to the man who is equal part headbanger, and Marsh Warbler. So, without further ado, this is Trees A Crowd, and this is Dr. Brian Briggs. Oh, and this, this is the bona fide first airing of our theme tune, played by none other than the aforementioned Glastonbury playing, later with Jules Holland appearing, silver record selling, Rolex, you get the idea. Here's Brian. In the depth of the forest an old oak grew The pride of the greenwood there On his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare She clung like a bride to his sturdy side And her shining leaves so green Made him blithe and gay through the live-long day In the midst of a winter scene Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Oh, the oak of the forest, he told me true, and I echo his tale in song. But the ivy, his branches made bare to view, while the oak made the ivy strong. Twas a union good in the old deep wood, and each for itself grown there. While the plant alone had no beauty shown When the boughs of the tree had been bare Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Where are we? We are at the Llanathlu Wetland Centre mm-hmm. which is a wildfowl and wetlands trust site We've got a collection of birds from around the world, exotic birds, wild wetland birds, flamingos, ducks and geese, and people can get up close and feed them. And then my job as the nature reserve manager, and we've got about 450 acres of land which we manage for wildlife. I try and make it as attractive as possible. For you, for for the people who come here, or for the birds? For both, for both, yeah. I kind of consider it sort of intensive farming really for for wildlife so wetlands are a incredibly dynamic habitat and I think that sort of meeting of land and water just results in insane rates of growth and lots and lots of food and so wetlands are sort of disproportionately rich really as a habitat and they take a hell of a lot of looking after so I mean obviously if you go far enough back things were on a large enough scale then wetlands were being created through natural processes and um, others were being 
you know, gradually developing into areas of woodland or drying out. And these days, because obviously landscape has been so broken up and affected by road and rail and so on, that, you know, these little pockets that we've got left, we have to try and keep them at different successional stages so that they stay attractive for those... Hi. Hello, hi. For those, um, you know, very threatened species in some cases that really rely on very specific wetland habitat types. And normally it would be managed, I guess, by like roaming herbivores and yes, browsing beavers exactly. and the like. And that's it. Uh, Chetty's warbler singing there. Yeah. I, I, uh, I love the idea of trying to move towards that, but... Uh, Did I read that you put a sheep on a rowboat? <laughs> we did, yeah. So we've been you know, where we can in the in the wetlands here. We we do use herbivores to to manage the habitat. You know, reduce the reliance we have on cutting stuff with strimmers and things like that. And yeah, we've got an island. Do you scythe then? Is that what you're saying? I don't scythe, no. But yeah, I think you know the cows and sheep and horses do a much better job sure. at that than I would anyway. But. Yeah, just to our left here is, in fact, let's go up to this screen, is the sort of main island in an area we call the Deepwater Lake. Uh And it's, when I started here a few years ago, it was basically getting covered in, rapidly getting covered in scrub and trees. And we were down to one pair of lapwings. I don't know if you can hear that water rail, can you? It's a great noise. Charming, they call it charming. Yeah, so this is the island we can see now in front of us here. It's kind of, it's quite wet at the moment. We've got the winter water levels uh-huh. set. But yeah, it extends over to the right and back to the reed bed you can see there. And uh, it's the sort of last little bit where one pair of lapwing was hanging on, but they hadn't produced any young or raised any young for about eight years. Because it was too wet? Because, because it was too overgrown? Too overgrown, okay. yeah. So they like, they're fussy like a, they're really fussy, yeah. <laughs> so like a lot of sort of ground nesting waders, they really like to be able to see far and wide. Uh-huh. Oh, I just seen the great crested grebe over there, which Where's is that. It's I don't know if you can you see the tufted duck swimming across left to right yeah, there, yeah, yeah. directly behind that. Oh, okay, yeah, I can see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's for me. That's exciting because they a recent colonist as a breeding bird here. They don't. They haven't used this area until last year where they, where they had chicks for the first time. So nice to see that back. That's the first time I've seen it uh, for, a, for a little while. So I've, I'm hoping, you know, if the, if the mate arrives, then we'll get some of yeah, that fantastic day. display that they do where they kind of shake their heads around and present each other with bits of pondweed and yeah, very, very graceful Great display. Um, so this is where you put the sheep? So yeah. Chopped down loads and loads of scrub here, uh, willow and things that was just shooting up very fast. And we took the sheep out the first year, one by one, on a, on a rowing boat to help us graze and manage that vegetation because lapwing they like a mixture of really low short grassland mm-hmm. to feed on little invertebrates, and then you know some longer patches for for cover. And then we've also got these sort of cockle shell covered kind of stony bouldery areas you can see as well uh-huh. which they like for nesting because their eggs are kind of these mottled you've put down the shell things yeah that's a sort of yeah that was put in when this reserve was created and it's been a real success so over the last 
few years we've just seen lapwing numbers increasing year on year and uh, it's just lovely to, to sort of think you know you can go in and do some habitat management and, and see the differences quite quickly and that, I think that's the unique, unique thing about wetlands is that they're just such they can be just quite dynamic and fast changing yeah. habitats but yeah this is unfortunately the last place in the whole county now where lapwing are nest, nesting and raising young we're in Carmarthenshire we're in Carmarthenshire yeah yeah, yeah. You were saying that the lapwing chicks were often predated by strange things, including hedgehogs. <laughs> yeah, last year we were just, I don't know, baffled by the fact that we had all these nests appearing with the lapwings, but then none of them seemed to reach the point of hatching. And uh, so we thought we'd put some cameras out and see what's going on. And it turned out that there were some hedgehogs that must have made it over in the winter, I guess, when the, when the water froze or something. But um, they were eating the eggs sadly and enjoying that a lot so every night they'd roam around finding the next new new nests and munch up the eggs do you allow yourself to intervene um i'm not saying you're out with a air <laughs> rifle shooting hedgehogs but like do you try and tempt them away with peanut butter <laughs> not in not in this case no um we don't really i mean yeah i think there's a couple of things that we do get hands-on with one of them is an invasive species called uh, the mink, which unfortunately is uh, a voracious predator of water voles. And this is a one of two national key sites for water voles in Wales. So we do keep an eye out for mink. Also invasive, we got a lot, unfortunately, every invasive plant you could think mm-hmm. of really. So we do battle with them quite like a lot. Like sea buckthorn and the like. And... Yeah, we've got something called um, New Zealand swamp stone crop or Crassula, Crassula helmsii and that's that's our biggest enemy that one and then we've got mm, Japanese knotweed, Himalayan balsam, uh, water fern. You, you can make really... a mean crumble out of Japanese knotweed. You know? Can you? Yeah, it's supposed to be a bit like rhubarb. <laughs> I've not tried that. Well there you go. Maybe this year. <laughs> so we're, well, where are we? It's the 3rd of March today so spring has sprung-ish? Spring has sprung, but it just seems to have gone a little bit on pause. We've got chilly. It's quite chilly this week, and um, we had a hint of lapwing display in last week for the first time this year, and then they've gone quiet again. But I can hear a greenfinch singing in the distance, that kind of long, wheezy kind of wee call, which is good to hear. Cause They're they, on the red list now, aren't they? Yeah, they've been having a rough time of it, but uh, seem to be maybe bouncing back a little bit. We've got one that visits our garden all the time, and I was very happy to see it and kept on putting food out for it, which was great. But then was very kindly reminded that one of the main reasons that greenfinch have declined is because people are overfeeding their garden birds and not cleaning or yeah. looking after the feeding stations efficiently, and so the greenfinch population getting diseases and dying out. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because obviously you want to you want to help as well and it is lovely to to see those birds on your on your feeders and you know that's one of the reasons I you know started to fall in love with nature is just feeding the birds in the garden so are you in love with nature then oh absolutely yeah oh yeah my whole life really and um, how does your partner feel about that <laughs> she's also she's also in love with with nature thankfully good yeah, I think I've kind of, I don't know, I think I'm in, on a bit of a sort of lifelong mi- mission to 
tune into it really and uh, immerse myself in it as best I can. When did you realise that? I think I realised it when I first discovered birdsong and the kind of the sonic world of nature. I think it suddenly took on a massive extra depth for me when I started to learn birdsong and I think I just really felt excited by that sort of added added immersion I guess. Uh, I felt I guess I don't know it's it's like that sense of being part of something I suppose or having a, a bit of a shot of added wildness and uh, for me I think the most exciting times of my life have been when out in really wild places either alone or you know at night and, and, and when you really find your senses you know you can't help but tune in then you're kind of fully alert for me that is the, the most exciting it, I, I kind of understand I think why you know people I mean, I don't do this, but why people hunt and fish and chase tornadoes and things. It's kind of the buzz you get from that sort of sense of being in it, properly in it and, and feeling wild. In it to be an aspect of it or in it to say you were there? I guess that's the thing. Are you interested in birds because you've got a list that you tick off and you say, I've seen 120 birds this month? Or are you someone who just enjoys being out with it? Or is it a bit of both? For me, it's the latter. I, I've never sort of been a, a bird lister, but I get that too, and I don't think it matters, you know, what it is that um, gets you excited about it. But I think it's just absolutely vital that people have that experience of feeling wild, and I think that's how we'll kind of we develop an appreciation for nature is to feel like you're you're a part of it so yeah you were saying that you first got tuned into nature when you started to learn birdsong when was that how old were you uh that was when i was um i finished my university degree and which was in in biological sciences in oxford university in oxford yeah yeah and then i did i i got a job then in the woods uh, near oxford whiten woods um, oh, the Great Tit Survey. Great Tit, that's it, yeah. It's just celebrated 75 that's years it, yeah. of continuous studying of yeah. one population. It's quite incredible. It is, and it's such a valuable data set, that, for looking at things like climate impacts. and uh, But, yeah, an absolutely magical place to work for a spring. The woods there, just glorious oak woodland with carpets of bluebells. And, you know, springtime in in the woods it's just such a what sensual what made you want experience. to do that though like what if you've got your degree was it birds that you wanted to pursue or was no, it just no, I'm I... at the end of my degree and no one tells me what I do now <laughs> more that I mean I was committed to wanting to work in nature conservation and to work outdoors in nature I didn't think I wanted to, to pursue an academic career and so I wanted to get it was it was yeah towards the end of my undergraduate degree that I I think I had a bit of a revelation that I wanted to be a nature reserve warden and work in conservation. I I had a trip to Skomer Island mm-hmm. and it was just so full of wildlife. 
and I just, yeah, I got to sort of meet the, the warden there. And, and Scoma, for those who don't know, is just off the Welsh coast. That's it, yeah. South yeah. Wales, Welsh coast. Yeah, amazing island. And I thought, oh yeah, fancy that job. Quite a practical job as well with, you know, driving boats and things like that. So I thought, yeah, okay, that kind of thing could work for me. And wasn't necessarily obsessed with working with birds, but I had this opportunity offered to me by someone I was working with at the university to learn how to ring birds and to do this field assistant job in the woods. And I'm so glad I did. Yeah, it was just beautiful job, really, wandering around nest box to nest box, you know, recording the eggs and then the chicks and then putting the little rings on the on the the bird's legs when they reach the, the right age and it, it's contributing to this amazing long-term study. It's worth saying that that study, as well as charting things like the change of breeding seasons, I think it's shifted by three weeks over the 75 years that it's existed, but it was also doing looking at like clutch size, egg size, mites and things that were in the bird, seeing how the population oh, yeah. was shifting. Like, yeah. like it's, it's basically studied everything to do with great tits. Everything you could possibly imagine to, to do with great tits and blue tits, yeah. It's uh, quite incredible. And, and obviously these days, you know, it's moved into genetics as well because, you know, you can harmlessly take little DNA samples and, uh, you know, they, they can then look at the lineage of these individual birds and even look at the personalities. Um, you know, that there's lots of evidence of how birds, as with other, other species, have got very different personalities and, and different personalities you know, play out beneficial in different years depending on, you know, what's going on with the with the climate or the, the food supply and so on and so forth. So Do you think yeah. you can hear that? You personally in their chirrups and their tweets? Um, can you tell a bullshit great tip? <laughs> yeah, I can actually. I mean we do some sliding. nest box surveys here, nest box monitoring and certainly you go from you know, one nest box you'll find that the parents are are invisible, you don't sense them at all and yet you know that they've got chicks in the box there. Others are literally like right by your ear just shouting at you saying <laughs> go away. Yeah so very much so and, and obviously between different species as well it's uh, it's exciting to sort of see things like the lapwing which are so highly strung during the nesting season they just constantly up and about anything that flies flies over they'll be up and trying to chase it off and uh, it just looks like an incredibly stressful time for them whereas you've got things like the mutes ones which are just like they'll do it anyway bold they don't don't (laughs) care even if i walk right up to them they they don't care at all they're just yeah they're definitely kings and queens of the of the lake i was once told and i think this is true that henry the eighth used to have mute swan necks on sticks to wipe his bum with (laughs) I'm, I can't, I can't tell you for certain whether that's true, but I think that is actually quite accurate. It's probably quite effective, I suppose. Yeah, as long as you go in the right direction. <laughs> um, that's a lovely, lovely image. There's another green finch over on the bush there. We've just started making a giant otter down here. So we just, just around the next corner, we've got this uh, huge sculpture that we just started making. So have to show you that. Is art an intrinsic part of the reserve here, a part of the WWT in general? Do you think it helps people engage with wildlife to have something artistic present too? I think it does. It is actually in our roots as an organisation because 
our founder is Sir Peter Scott, who is a famous artist. Mm-hmm. It hasn't always been, you know, part of our day-to-day work and engagement, to be honest. But I think, you know, I feel like it it should be. It can definitely be a way in for, for some people. And in this particular one, we, this particular piece we're working on with with volunteers. So that's great for them. They get a, a proper... They get to come in and contribute to the wicker otter. They do. Uh, it's headless, unfortunately, as you can see. It's work in progress. It is, yeah. I think another f- another few weeks it needs a coat. <laughs> but, um, oh, it's lovely. Just watch your step on these branches. So you can see scenes of devastation here. Mm. It's just kind of, people don't really think of this really as nature conservation. You don't, don't imagine this as nature conservation, yeah. but um, yeah. that's conservation but as far as wetlands are concerned. And uh, yeah, if we didn't do that, as I sort of, as mentioned before, you know, these ditch edges and things obviously get quite shaded and um, you lose the thick marginal vegetation that species like the water voles need. And as mentioned before, lapwings, they like to be able to see where they are and not to feel enclosed. But it's not, yeah, I mean, we we try and cater for a wide range of species, but we tend to sort of do it on the basis of what's what's in trouble. Sure. Yeah, and uh, this winter we've actually have been doing a lot of work for a woodland species called willow tit, which is Britain's fastest declining resident bird. And... um, We've got, we've got at least one pair here, which is exciting. They're beautiful been, little fluffy things. Yeah, so we've been doing a lot of work to try and get, get the habitat in good condition for them this winter. So this, the reed bed is one of my favorite bits of the reserves, reserve in terms of, I don't know, just sort of feeling in the thick of it, I guess. So am I right in saying that you were following a career in birds and wildlife conservation, doing a PhD in, I have a record of it being gadwall ducks and shoveler ducks. Yeah. Down in London. Right. Yeah. But at that point, your career sort of twisted a little bit and had a kink. Yeah, and it kind of took took me by surprise, really. But I've always enjoyed music as well, and since probably about being been about ten, I've enjoyed a bit of improvising on on the piano and then eventually taught myself guitar Uh Um, so by the time I got to start my PhD I'd written a little group of songs I met someone in my first week who was a really talented multi-instrumentalist called John who's uh, you know we decided to form a band together yeah it was just a really really fortunate meeting because he, he just turned out to be the absolute perfect match in terms of his his abilities and his his taste in music as well and uh, his knowledge of recording as well and, and so we just got almost immediately into it and I think we discovered that we we really enjoyed the creative process as much as the actual playing playing of music together so we just yeah really loved experimenting and trying different instruments out and just really enjoyed putting some music together and then advertised and got a band together and um, 
Yeah, went, went unexpectedly well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I've got it down as in, in 2006, I think it was about when you properly got started. Is that when you formed? Yeah. Yeah, yeah there was a right. local DJ in Oxford who decided to barricade himself in the studio and play your music on loop for an hour. That's right, yeah. Three years later, you're the He's first right. unsigned band ever to appear on Jules Holland. Um, yeah. Your first album goes silver, which I didn't realise it, but that means you sold over 200,000 copies. Is it 200 or 20,000? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't it's 200,000 is silver. Wow. There you go. Great. And <laughs> So well done. Congratulations. There you go. Like <laughs> you did you. did really well. I guess, I mean, here's a question. Did John like birds? Does Ollie like birds? Did the rest of the band have this <laughs> equal fascination with nature? Being honest, not really, no. <laughs> Is that why you broke up? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they tolerate it. <laughs> no, they, they do. We, we do all enjoy the outside world and, you know, our tours always inevitably feature some kind of outdoor adventures on our days off and things. I mean, when we went around America, we found ourselves in like a wolf territory and uh, sort of eventually like had moments like having to pull ticks off each other and things like this. So, um, <laughs> but no, not really. They're, they're not quite. They're not quite as um, nature mad as me. I mean, I've I've listened to music since probably almost the very beginning. And I always thought you were quite naturey, but I didn't realise that you had a side profession basically running alongside it. So you're up there with Al Green, who's a who's a Vic <laughs> a musician. Yeah. You've got Brian May as an astrophysicist, and a little bit of research later told me that Jeff Baxter from Steely Dan and the Doobie Brothers became a consultant for the U.S. Department of Defense to help them with an air defense missile system. <laughs> so you, do you think that having a foot in two different camps gives your music something extra to say? I think it does. I think it's kind of, it's just having that balance, I suppose. And I think both feed feed each other, really, uh, both sides of, of life. I think after 10 years of adventures with Stornoway, which to an extent, I suppose, did take me away from nature, I... Ticks and wolves aside. Ticks and wolves aside. I felt, you know, ready to... And excited by the idea of, you know, properly, you know, getting back to that and to the kind of career path that I'd been on before. Are you suggesting then that your third album, Bonksy, which is named after a bird and features bird songs within the music throughout, are you suggesting that that album is a cry for help then? <laughs> Maybe. There were grey, grey skies on the grey, grey ocean. There were rusting cars on the rusting hills. Yeah, there's been a sort of swapping from one thing to the other of career and of sort of work and play. And actually, you know, now this time around, I feel like it's, you know, about accepting that the two are very much, you know, part of who I am and that I really, you know, want to do both and do both at the same time really and uh, I think I suppose when Stornoway first came along and for quite a long time I sort of wasn't I didn't, don't know if I really kind of believed that it was anything more than a bit of an ad adventure a bit of fun and I think it's only recently 
after we broke up and I had a bit of time back working entirely in nature mm -hmm. that I've rediscovered songwriting and realised how how important that is to me and I, I kind of I think it's only now after all this time that I actually feel like I'm an artist really because basically finding a bit of shed time during the pandemic I just got sucked so powerfully back into it writing songs for the first time that I felt like I wasn't even necessarily in control it was like I felt like I guess almost like being a painter and it was just like someone else was controlling my hand as to, and I just it was like a real adventure for me and I just found it so exciting and I think it's just made me realize that I am an artist and that both of these things in my life are a part of who I am and that they both kind of they feed each other really I suppose. Were you aware of how you were using nature in your music changing because I think in the earlier albums nature is there as metaphor before you then eventually end up using nature as instrument. That's true. I think for Bonksy, where we actually used recordings of around 20 different species. And I've got you uh, done with the skylarks and red grouse in Lost Youth. You got some tits at the end of Love Song of the Beta Male. Yeah. Between the salt marsh and the sea opens with Brent Geese. I mean, yeah. Just to name a few. You got some green shack. Got a snipe in there, which is a wonderful sound. still lies hiding in the shadow of the mountainside we are lost yeah we had a lot of fun with that and really kind of i suppose the thinking is with making music is is always to kind of you know talking about painting again but basically trying to paint a picture for the for the listener of a mood and of a context and Stornoway songs are pretty much always rooted in in the outdoors or at least elements of them are. Because you write them outside? Because I suppose the outside is my is is so inspiring to me. That's where I feel that sense of wildness and, and that is a real inspiration I suppose for me. For those that are probably they probably worked it out by now and when this when this podcast episode goes out, you're reforming. <laughs> so when you say this time around, it means that after, how long has it been, 2017, so six years of separation? Yes, yeah. We've come back together. Yeah, we're back. And it was, yeah, it wasn't planned as a Stornoway thing, really. It was just a rediscovery of, of songwriting and then a realisation that I had to get John involved, for starters, to help putting some nice touches on their strings and brass and things like that and then Ollie on bass and it just it was inevitable really. <laughs> Have you been working in isolation or do you find a chance it's to get It's all together? been in our in our various sheds dotted around the country yeah and it's worked fine it's worked really well and we've been sending the songs over to this chap called Mike Lindsay who lives in the far east of the country at Margate and he's been mixing and, and adding some wonderful quirky touches. Bert? 
Is no, but well, he hasn't been adding any birds. No. Um, are you going to add birds? We've got, we've got some. Of course, we've got some birds. In there. Are they repeat yeah. birds or are they all new birds? <laughs> Bird loving. We've actually away got. Fishing, I'll they? be honest. It's it's more of a kind of dawn chorus effect that I'm thinking of um, uh-huh. in one particular song. We've got trees in a, another song. We've got a song. As in the wind through trees, or no, not sound, but just as subject matter. We've got okay. one that's a song about. Ash dieback, actually. So it sounds a bit gloomy, but ash it's dieback kind of as a, a love metaphor. Or ash dieback as a conservation warning. It's. I've got it as a metaphor for someone <laughs> passing away. Okay, I'm not laughing. Yeah. I love it. There's not often you get talked to a musician who likes to use the idea of ash dieback as a metaphor for for mourning. Yeah, it, it's basically inspired by this beautiful big ash in the valley behind where I live in Gower. Uh-huh. So on the north Gower. There's this limestone escarpment, which is prime ash habitat. It's kind of climax ash woodland, and it's just falling apart, unfortunately. Yeah. The, 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 uh, just these huge holes appearing in the canopy, and I think they'll all be eventually filled in with sycamore, probably, which is, you know, fine, but it's going to change the character of those woods for a very long time. So uh, it is a sad thing, I think, and um, yeah, I've sort of written a bit of a eulogy I suppose it's got a bit of a hymnal feel to it but uh, nothing wrong with that yeah just looking at this is a an artificial nesting bank we've put in this winter for kingfishers okay there's little holes where they yeah so we've been out there standing in chest waders drilling holes in that and uh, yeah we've had we had the nest there last year but the problem is is that we dig we can dig a sort of bare earth face but in the winter, with the sort of wave action and the wind, it just tends to collapse. And, sure, sure. and we think the year before that, um, a mink got in because the hole sort of got a bit larger and kingfishers suddenly disappeared. So, fingers crossed, this will be a nice, safe, luxury apartment for them. Kingfishers. Yeah. Have your bandmates come down here? They've been down to Gower a few times, but they haven't actually been on this reserve yet. I read that you once shared a hotel room with a guillemot. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's worse, sharing a hotel room with your bandmates on tour or sharing a bedroom and bathroom with a guillemot, which is smellier? To be honest, the guillemot <laughs> is by far the smelliest. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's probably, yeah, probably moments where that might not be true. But yeah, generally, the guillemot is a really stinky roommate. Yeah, we had one in the... in bathroom for a few days while it was trying to nurse it back to health this was part of a project to this is down in Dorset yeah yeah in Dorset it was birds that had been in an oil spills and uh, well it was part of an experiment really to see whether it was worth investing money and time in trying to clean up seabirds to release them again because unfortunately I think the vast majority of these birds once they've been exposed to been the oil. exposed internally and externally they just never get back to straight or the, the, the proportion that do is so small you know I think the conclusion is probably that spend the money and try and stop the spills exactly, in the first place exactly yeah but it was a great great fun uh, front, fun job five months in a in Weymouth driving speed boats throwing sprats at guillemots <laughs> in, a, in a floating cage out at sea and um yeah, that, the smell of those sprats, it took absolutely months to go away. It was just 
pervaded through every element of my life. <laughs> Such is the, the life on a bird colony, just the smell of nothing else. Oh, it's um, wonderful, isn't it? So <laughs> on your Bonksy album, you made a couple of music videos, one of which was Man on Wire, where you and the band looks like you spend a day playing with peregrine falcons. Get Low, where you and the band spend a day playing with grey lag geese. You look across the water like a bird in a cage. I guess the big question is, how are you going to manipulate the video <laughs> content for album number four to enable you to spend some quality time with the bird <laughs> of your choice? I'm still working on that. <laughs> but that, those two videos you mentioned were like highlights of my whole life I think it's just so exciting the geese in particular we had these geese which were owned by um, and reared by a couple called Rose and Lloyd Buck in fact if you get the chance to interview them that would be that would be amazing they've devoted their lives to rearing birds for documentaries and film and it's like their family really so mm -hmm. um we had geese that had been imprinted on rose, so they obviously hatched and the first thing they saw was rose uh -huh. and so they follow her, well they would follow her wherever she, wherever she went. Hey. How's it going? You're right. <laughs> How are you doing? Are you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. You keeping all right? Yeah. Have you seen any sign of the willow tits today? Not yet, no. We just went down that new place. To have a look. Yeah. I think they did, the guys did a survey today and this morning. I still haven't heard what they've got, but they, they sounded quite excited. So I'm hoping they showed up again. But they've been, pre they've been present. <laughs> have a good day anyway. Cheers. Here's a question. Do the local birders know that you have an alternate vocational... No, they don't. I think, no, I'd say they wouldn't. How do you think uh, they'd take it? <laughs> How dare you work here? You haven't devoted your entire life to that <laughs> like we have. I don't think they'd be too put out, to be honest, but uh, I know I made it into the Lethley Star one, one, <laughs> one year. Which Congratulations. Is, thank you, yeah. So news got out eventually. If you seek my secret escaped <laughs> at some point. Do you think you'll ever do a, a small to, acoustic gig here? I do point? sometimes, I do, because we have these amazing gang of volunteers that help, you know, deliver a lot of this work that you can see, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's more volunteers than staff by far. Sure. Well, that's true of the entire charitable sector, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, but, but we have these socials, you know, twice a year, and uh, I always get forced to get up and, and sing a song. Go, Brian! <laughs> But it's good fun. It's a, there's a talented bunch actually. We get it, it's a bit of an open mic session, and there's always some amazing contributions from from the from the volunteers. You walk up on the stage, just put your silver record on the chair, <laughs> just ignore that. I'm just gonna. <laughs> so this stuff, what you can see, it looks, looks quite strange. It's almost like a wood henge or something. But yeah, uh -huh. these are like stumps, tree stumps, and this is part of our willow tip management. So oh, okay. it's. Um, by the edge of this pond so it's letting a bit more light in but this is in it, it, very quickly this will shoot and we'll get a lot of dense Bushier. kind of bushy 
bushy willow around oh, the so edge. Epicormic shoots. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we're getting, what is it? Is it alder or is it it's willow? It's a bit of both. Yeah, alder tends to be the kind of reddish, the sort of redder, redder looking. It's supposed wood. to be bad luck to cut down an alder because the red starts to ooze and blood comes out. Oh dear, I might be in trouble there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, lots of that, and you can see we've even cut little slots into the trees yeah. there with a chainsaw, and that is um, just to try and sort of speed up the aging of the trees and to create a bit more you know niches for fungi invertebrates hopefully willow tits but yeah all these trees were planted at the same times so that they're all the same age so the woodlands generally have got a fairly uniform age structure so the idea of this management is that we're just diversing it diversifying it a bit more and mm-hmm. letting a bit of oh that's the willow tit call did you hear that's that it. beep 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 yeah that's it Brilliant. that's a treat do you think there could be a way to make Stornoway have more of an active conservation foot forward? Like a percentage of album sales or videos designed to heighten awareness for ash dieback, etc. Is that something you might be interested in pursue or do you think that would be yeah, one we'd... step too far to your bandmates? No, it wouldn't. Um, they are totally on board with it. And yeah, they, they really support us doing what, whatever we can yeah, to in, in, increase our impact as far as nature conservation is concerned and, well, and minimise our impact as far as carbon footprint and so on. So, yeah, we're sort of th- trying to think of, of creative ways of doing that. I mean, one thing which we've always really loved doing and will definitely do again is to play acoustic gigs without electricity and mm-hmm. in the natural environment as well. So we did a little run of gigs on RSPB reserves in the past and we're keen to do that kind of thing again. We're going to do some gigs in green spaces in cities this year. I don't know if that's actually hasn't actually been announced yet. So I Well this goes but, out in April so Oh it might be okay. Yeah. It'll be okay. When are you then. going to start touring? We've got a gig in April, first one. Is that with Fife Dangerfield? Yes. Of yeah. the Guillemots. Yes. Yeah. Are you jealous that he called his band the Guillemots? I am, yeah. <laughs> I am I, yeah, I, always, I am. <laughs> yeah. That is genuine animosity. <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's a great guy, and I, I, he's his music is oh, an inspiration as well. So, but yeah, I think deep down, every song I write is kind of, you know, about being a seabird, way out over the over the ocean. <laughs> so yeah, he got in there first with that. But yeah, Do no, you we'll feel like you could sort of requisition it? That you've proved that you deserve it more? <laughs> Do the Guillemots even still exist? Because I think he's touring under his own name. He now. is. I think he... I don't think they've been declared... They're not red-listed. <laughs> no, they're still, they're still out there. They're still ready, they're out there ready to come back, hopefully. I hope so, anyway. But, sure. um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know whether, whether they will or not. Yeah. Is he a keen birder? Yeah, he is, yeah. He does quite a bit, I think. There's a su- surprising number of us out there, aren't there? Yeah, long may it continue. So yeah, you're touring with him in April, doing a gig with him in April. Yeah, and then, yeah, by the time this goes out, we will have announced another tour in the autumn. And like I say, some we're going to be collaborating with Sam Lee and his Nest Collective. Mm-hmm, I know Sam. Yeah, OK. And doing some 
shows in green spaces in, in allotments and things in cities again I don't know I think our, our music just works best outdoors when I was listening to the mixes for the new material over in Gower I sort of found the best sort of focus and best experiences to go out and have a walk on the beach and it just kind of it just works best I think in an outdoor environment and that you know it makes me particularly excited about playing gigs not just in these small outdoor spaces but hopefully on festival stages as well and we've just always had an amazing time playing at festivals where our music seems to have connected well with people and so we're very much looking forward to that and it feels like we're getting back into it for the right reasons in that it it's coming from a want a, a desire to to create and to enjoy playing music together i'm not planning to jack in my nature conservation work i i really want to to get to move forward with with the balance of the two and sure. uh, i think that's going to be important point. really that's the point yeah it's uh, what are the other feeds the other um do they have in- any of them astrophysicists or <laughs> missile defence experts? Yeah, uh, our bassist Ollie is... Works for British Petroleum and Shell. <laughs> he maker. works for AstraZeneca. Oh, OK. And he's a, he's a data scientist. He's like, he's definitely the, the biggest geek of the band. He's, like, he's, he's really, he's great on... The Are any of you not geeks? <laughs> I suppose not really, no. Um... <laughs> Yeah, he just loves data crunching and numbers, and and actually that works quite well for because he's the guy who does all our social media, sure. and he's brilliant at I don't know understanding that and making sense of how best to engage with with our fans and things. So he I'm so glad he I'm so glad he does that. Yeah, <laughs> and then John is. He's doing some music teaching, uh-huh. and he also does he does radio, you know, pieces for radio and theatre soundtracks, and yeah, he's he's a very very talented guy. He can just he loves kind of I don't know painting with lots of different instruments and layering up really rich rich soundscapes. So it's it works really well in in a sort of theatre and. Uh, mm-hmm film setting so so there are three questions that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast the first is if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now where would it be I wonder whether does it have to be in the world because I, I it can be anywhere it could be otherworldly do you want to go on another yeah I planet? might go well, I was thinking maybe not necessarily otherworldly but lunar because okay. I don't know I would just love to see to look down on this beautiful planet and see it from a distance and to walk somewhere that had no life at all I think it'd just be really interesting to just be in a completely lifeless alien place like that and I think I think I find that really inspiring because I think um, counterintuitively um, nature being deeply immersed in in a wild place is very inspiring but I also find being very disconnected from nature very inspiring as well and being able to look, I don't know, to think of things from, from distance, you know, for perspective. So 
And I think it would also be a hell of a lot of fun to be in a low gravity environment. Are you suggesting that this is what the, the video for the fourth <laughs> album is going to be then? Like, OK, go. I don't think a, the label's got a quite a big co- enough budget. Comet. <laughs> oh, that would be so much fun. Not I think massive. you're the first person to choose to walk on the moon. All oh, right, OK. That's good. Yeah, well, the other thing I was going to say is I'm a big fan of um, Hacky Sack. I don't know if you've heard of that, but mm-hmm. yeah, it, I can imagine that'd be really good, good on the moon. <laughs> Second question, who is your natural history hero? Well, I've got so many natural history heroes. I've been inspired by um, Jane Goodall, who came and spoke at my school when I was a kid. Uh, in fact, my, my biology teacher at school was a real inspiration because he taught me the blackbird song we did a little study of uh, blackbird territories around the school and that was uh, my first kind of time you know learning about bird song and territories in that way who else gavin maxwell you know talk of the otter i loved so many of those those wildlife themed books when i was a kid my dad uh, who's a paleontologist. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask you about that. What's it like growing up with your father who's a paleontologist? Like, what does that instill in you, even by accident? Because that's cool. Like, my dad was a vicar. <laughs> oh, really? I had a man wearing a dress every day. <laughs> I never saw my dad wearing a dress. But, um, <laughs> he, uh, I mean, there wasn't a huge amount of paleontology in my life, although occasionally we would go out and, and have a bit of a dig around in a quarry or something, which I absolutely loved. Mm-hmm. But the, obviously there's that passion for natural history there, which definitely influenced me. So, you know, and, and that energy and drive, I suppose, is, is inspiring as well, uh, and passion for a, for a subject. What does he think of what you do? Both of the things you do? Both of the things, you know, I think, I think I've got fortunate to have two proud parents. I think they would never have expected me to sort of have a career in as a rock star, but uh, they uh, are you a they rock love star? it. <laughs> Am I a rock star? <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. You tell me. I've yeah. never seen a rock star wearing a beanie with a charity logo whilst walking <laughs> around their necks. Uh, but um, it does take all kinds. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe it was part of my own reticence about whether I'm an artist, whether I'm a rock star, is is. You know, perhaps because it was, I didn't really know people like that growing up, and uh-huh. it was a very different career path to for what my brothers have taken and my family. But yeah, they they love it, and my uh, we when we, we played our our farewell show a few years ago, we had a stage invasion after the last song, and my mum was the first person on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and then I've got another natural history hero now, which is my dog. And um, I never had a dog before, and he's a big, furry beast, and he's like amazing for for cuddles. And I've never had a connection with an animal like that before. And I just love going on walks with him because he he just a mongrel or a particular breed. He's a golden retriever. Uh He's just, you know, I, I talked about a lot about sound and about bird song, but he has opened my nose to the natural environment. I've got a really bad sense of smell, but he, you know, it has just made me aware that there's this whole world of smell out there as well. And um, 
I think he's further deepened my connection with nature. And I think, I mean, obviously dogs have their negative impacts on the environment as well. But overall, I think they are another, you know, powerful tool for connecting people with, with the natural world and uh, really good fun. So he's, he's my current natural history hero. So your walk was on the moon, your natural history hero was your dog. <laughs> These are strong answers, Brian. These are really good. <laughs> yeah. Is there going to be a song? Is there going to be a Storn Away song devoted to your dog in a sense as well? It's, it's inevitable, but I haven't <laughs> written one yet, I'll be honest. Um, final question. If you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? I would definitely bring back something of the European megafauna. Okay. Because I think... It would make your job easier here, getting <laughs> all of the reeds back. It would do that, yes. But also it would just excite people. If we had, I don't know, something like... I mean, the woolly mammoth obviously is the kind of wrong climate for them now, but God, how exciting would it be to kind of come across something like that when yeah. you were out in in nature i mean beavers uh, i've mentioned obviously they are they are back in parts of the parts of the country what else are we missing no, i think a, a giant piece of megafauna uh, like a, one of the old sort of there's weird elephant sort of the elephant crossbreeds that we had going through europe with shorter snouts and that's right ones. yeah i just can't remember what they're called something that would just give it an extra buzz about you know make people force people to tune in because they were actually in mortal peril <laughs> I, I about a month ago went down to kent to see the bison reintroduction program that the kent wildlife trust have got going down there yeah and that's like the exact that. feeling to see large wild animals back in a substantial environment that you wouldn't mess with yeah um, gives you such an innate respect for the natural world that we don't have anymore yes i think I'd, i mean i'd love to do that here just to remove the fences and just have you know some boars rootling around and catland ponies and so on i think it just yeah it does it does make people i don't know it just would just be, be pretty exciting to be honest so the other species that could be really interesting to bring back would be the neanderthal okay <laughs> And uh, I, yeah, I haven't given any real thought as to what on, how on earth that might play out. But um, would we have to keep them in an enclosure? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It'd be would really we have to watch them from really a hide. Interesting. I think it would really change how we. I don't know. I change how we do nature conservation potentially, because uh -huh. um, obviously just been so close to us genetically it would really blur the boundaries between humans and wildlife, I suppose. And the act of conservation in itself, whenever we introduce a new species, it's normally because it has a positive effect upon its environment, whether it's a beaver recanalizing or decanalizing man-made structures, or whether it's longhorn cattle breaking up wildlife. You'd have to wonder, would Neanderthal, just by its mere existence, have a positive conservation effect? just by the way it yeah. moves around and roams the environment. I think it might well do, but more in terms of how it affects people's, human's behaviour and human attitudes to other species. I don't know, I think, I think people have life-changing experiences, don't they, when they work with great apes uh -huh. and, uh, 
you know, just that realization of how close some of these species are to, to us and how, you know, how far we've just, we've come. yeah, how far we've come, but I don't necessarily mean that in a positive way, <laughs> no. um, but also how directly our impact on the planet has, has affected, affected these other amazingly in, intelligent and beautiful creatures. Okay, here's, here's one final question to end on then. I'm going to go back to the music video question that you didn't quite answer. All right. Based around the thought that, thoughts that you've just shared, knowing that you've got some consideration going on, what, what animal would you like to spend three and a half minutes with in a YouTube video? Like, what is the music video of choice for you? That is an excellent question. Um, Any animal? Oh my God, okay. I think I'm tempted could to be in go... a bath with giant stick insects. I'm held aloft by a swarm of kingfishers. <laughs> like anything. I think I'd go marine and I think I'd go whale because I mean I mean obviously just be ridiculously exciting to I don't know, hang on to the fin of a humpback whale or something and just or maybe one of those manta rays. I mean that would be on my t- very high on my list for, for next year is to try and find a basking shark. Cause I've yeah, they're never, around. I've never seen one of them in the wild. Head over to the west coast of Ireland and you might be lucky. Maybe I can arrange a music video that involves uh, swimming with a basking shark. That'd be pretty cool. The good thing is they've got their mouth open most of the time. You could try and get them to lip sync. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, super. Thank you, Brian. Much appreciated. Thank you. Cheers, David. A massive thank you to Brian for walking and talking me around his reserve in Carmarthenshire and all my very best to him, to Ollie and to John for the imminent and much-anticipated return of Stornaway. Thanks also to them and their label for allowing me to use excerpts from their last album, Bonksy, to illustrate this week's episode. But if you want to buy tickets to their upcoming tour or hear their wonderful new single that is already receiving airplay across the globe head across to treesacrowd.fm where you will find information on all that was discussed during this week's episode. Also worth saying that both the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust and their Clenethley Reserve are incredible. So please suspend those binocs around your neck, don those cobweb-filled wellies and head out to your nearest wetland at your very next opportunity. We will be back a little sooner than you might expect this month, but I'll leave that tease hanging there and simply say that I am looking forward to seeing you all again soon. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.